All right, friends, how are we? We good? Fantastic. Am I, am I up? You guys can hear me, yeah? Fantastic, good, awesome. Hey, let me pray and we'll dive into God's word together. Lord, we've come together not because we need to um, receive a lesson or because we need to hear a person teach us some things, uh, but because we want you, by the power of your spirit, to unveil to us uh, the things that stand behind and underneath all the physical realities of our world that we see. So as we think about sex and singleness and all the different implications of uh, the way you've designed us, we pray that you would show us your intention and we pray that you would help us to walk in faithfulness. Father, we just would say to you, we make a wreck of things often in this area in particular. Uh, we have gone astray and done things we shouldn't have done and made unwise choices that didn't lead to your glory and our flourishing. And so we pray that you'd restore us. We pray that you'd redeem what we have broken or what has been broken by others in our lives. We pray that you would speak to us in great tenderness, but with great strength too. We'll receive whatever you have to give us. If it's a word of affirmation or conviction, we wanna be people who live uh, aligned with you, with who you are and what you say. We trust that all that you are is true and right and good, and all that you say, therefore, is true and right and good. So teach us today by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you got your Bibles, you can open up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As you're turning there, let me say, uh, if you're joining us, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we are in the middle of a series that we started last week called God, the Gospel, and Sex. And so we are talking about God's design and delight in sexuality, the way he's made us. And then we're addressing a couple other subjects around that for the next couple of weeks. So I want you to be aware of that. Um, I want to say this. This subject, obviously on Sundays, this is more of a monologue than it is a dialogue. As much as I love it when you talk back to me and, uh, and we kind of go back and forth. Obviously, I, you know, I've, I've got the mic. I'm up here talking and the assumption is that you, you primarily listen while we're, uh, while we're sitting here. But particularly when it's with a subject like this, one of the things I recognize is there's such a need for dialogue more than monologue, right? Uh, with all the different things that we're going to talk about. And so I just wanted to... We'll do something a little different. Next week, after our services are over, we're gonna open up the, the student ministry space. I'm gonna head down there. We're just gonna have a time of Q&A. So if things that you're hearing either last week about God's design of sex and the way he's designed and why he delights in it, if what we're gonna talk about today, which is singleness and God's intention and purpose and singleness, uh, or you know, next week we'll talk about the gospel and homosexuality, what the Bible does and doesn't say related to that subject. And then we'll talk about how to practically, in week four, we'll talk about how to practically walk out our righteousness in this area. Uh, I recognize that that probably raises questions for you. Uh, and you know, I know that you're probably leaving this place and going and having conversations with other folks in your world. And that's great, we encourage that, we want that. But I also recognize it might be something where you like, you kind of wish maybe somewhat you could raise your hand and go, what do you mean by that? Or how does that play out? Or have you thought about this? Or I really disagree with you. Uh, and we just want to make space for that. So we're going to have a time of Q&A next week. Just want to make you aware of that. We're not doing it today because we figured it'd be two last minute notice. Uh, and we've got a couple other things happening right after this. So if that interests you, stick around for it next week. We'll do it. Uh, we'll do about an hour. We'll throw some snacks out there too because I know that many of you are like, I can't stay, it's lunchtime. What are you talking about? We'll throw a few snacks out there so hopefully maybe you can link, feel like you can linger a little bit. I don't promise filet mignon, okay? It'll probably be like pretzels and some apple slices. It'll be like Little League all over again. It'll be awesome, all right? So anyway, just wanted to make you aware of that. Now, 
let me do a little bit of review because particularly if you missed last week, everything built off of last week. And so I want to remind us, because if you're like me, I forget from week to week what I heard last week. In fact, if you were to ask me tomorrow, here's the funny part is I probably forget faster than you do because by Tuesday I'm working on the next week's sermon. And somebody always comes up and goes, hey, when you said this last week and it's gone, like whatever I said, I'm like, oh, did I say that? Awesome. I've already got next week's sermon starting to percolate in my head. So I forget stuff. I'm sure you do too. Let me remind us that we talked about really the whole sermon revolved around these four pillars of a Christian view of sex. And my argument was, or my, what I wanted to offer you is this, is that the church throughout all its history has really held to these four things as it pertains to sex and what the Bible teaches about sex. And it's very important because I think what we've done is we've introduced some philosophical leanings that actually don't, they're not biblical, but they, they treat sex differently than how God treats it. And so we, as a result of those philosophical leanings, often in the church are really reticent to talk about sex. Uh, we're a little bit prudish when it comes to thinking about it and addressing it and being willing to have kind of honest, frank conversations about it. And, and we think of it as less than what it really is. We don't think of it for the, as the good thing that God designed it to be. And that's unfortunate because honestly, People who believe the gospel should be people who are the biggest champions of right and good and healthy sex because it creates human flourishing and joy in God. And so uh, we want to be uh, reminding ourselves of that. So four pillars. Number one, God created sex and calls it very good. Number two, sex teaches us about the nature of God. There's something about God being in Trinitarian form in self-giving love for all eternity, from eternity past to eternity future, that is demonstrated in sex. Sex teaches us about the love of Jesus was pillar number three. There's something about covenant relationship with him that we learn through sex inside the covenant of marriage. And then number four, pillar number four, sex extends God's rule and reign or what we call his kingdom. Sex extends God's rule and reign by creating families for his glory and by creating a common good for our communities. Now, those are the four pillars. The Christian church has always taught about sex, always thought that way about sex, and where we've kind of missed those things, we've usually gone astray in our teachings about sex, either being uh, a little overly permissive or a little uh, legalistic in, in how we approach it. So, now my aim in showing you those four pillars was to convince you of something very simple. It was to convince you that sex is a good gift given to us by God so that we would learn to delight in and love him more. And when we delight in and love him more, he is more glorified in us. You know that, right? God is certainly, when we're dutifully committed to God, there's a, there's a way in which that honors him, but God is more honored, more glorified by people who don't just do things out of a sense of duty and faithfulness because we must, but because we delight to do it, because we love him first and most. That's why we just sang. What do we just sing, right? We love you, Jesus. Jesus, we love you, right? And what a great, simple reminder. I told George, I love that song because it just reminds me that all of this boils down to that simple thing, doesn't it? Jesus, we love you. We love you first. We love you most. You're better. You satisfy like nothing else on the earth satisfies. Psalm 16, one of my favorite psalms, says about God, it says, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. And that's true about God in Jesus Christ. He opens his hand. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. In fact, if you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the things we would want you to know is that coming into this place is not about learning rules and regulations about how to, what God tells us we should and shouldn't do. That's not primarily what this place called the church is about or these people called the church are about. We are about learning to find our all in all in Jesus Christ. Learning to find him to be better more sufficient, more pleasing, and therefore wanting to 
obey the way he calls us to live. Yes, there are some rules and regulations involved in following Jesus. There's some things he says, do this and don't do that. But we do those things because we love and because he first loved and our love is a response to him. So that was my aim. Now, the obvious conclusion from those four pillars and the fact that they exist, right, so that we would glorify God more, this sex is a good gift that we would learn to delight in God, that it's a sacrament to be offered back to God, an act of worship, right? The obvious assumption or the obvious conclusion from that is that marriage has a context. It has a right space in which it's to be practiced. And that space is marriage, right? The covenant bonds of marriage are the right place for sex to take place. Now, what I didn't do very well last week, and I just want to revisit very quickly if I can, is I don't think I made a very good argument or I didn't make it clear, like point A to point B, why it is that sex outside of marriage sort of robs sex from its ability to do its job. So if we say this is the design of sex, these four pillars represent what sex is and why God designed it, why he actually loves it and delights in it. If that's, if that's true, then why is it that that can't take place outside of a marriage? Why does sex outside of a marriage sort of um, harm sex's ability to do its design, to fulfill its design? Because you could kind of go, well, I mean, I can get how maybe if I was, you know, hopping around from, from person to person and, you know, engaging sexually, I can get how that might not... in enable me to do those four pillars, but what about like a committed, you know, monogamous type of relationship, or at least a season of monogamy, right? What about like being in a, a dating relationship? And I'm real serious. We're very serious, right? And so why would that preclude learning those things? And I want to offer you two reasons why. And that's the thing I think we need to be clear about, right? Number one is this. And again, I'm going to hit these quick because there's a lot of other things to cover today. Number one is that sex can't teach us about the nature of God. That's pillar number two, right? Sex can't teach us about the nature of God outside of marriage because it's the covenant of marriage that represents the inseparable nature of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist in self-giving, inseparable, with an inseparable nature for all of eternity. They have from eternity past and will all the way into eternity future. Because that's the case, right? God has designed marriage and brought sex into marriage so that what we looked at last week, he calls it a one flesh union so that sex is the physical expression of that one flesh nature of husband and wife. And so if sex is designed to show us the nature of God, it's the covenant of marriage that makes it a one flesh union, which allows us to then experience the inseparableness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father can never be separate from the Son, nor the Son from the Spirit, nor the Spirit from the Father. You get that, church? You follow that? Okay, it may be a little bit theoretical, but I want you to understand that there's always theology, uh, right, behind every act, behind every action, by the way we think. So that's number one, why sex outside of the context of marriage can't allow sex to accomplish its design. Number two is this, is that sex can't teach us about the love of Jesus outside of marriage because he died to establish a covenant with us and it's inside that covenant relationship that we experience his love, his protection, and his knowingness. So... Sex in the covenant of marriage demonstrates the intimacy of our covenant with him. To take sex outside of that covenant, friends, is, is kind of akin to this, right? So sex is the physical expression of intimacy within marriage. And so Jesus gives it to us, God gives it to us, so that we might understand the kind of intimacy that he desires and designed us for with him. It's a, it's a placeholder. Sex is just a placeholder. Right? It won't exist in all eternity. It's here as an expression within the bonds of marriage to show us what intimacy and knowingness and self-protecting love is like 
the kind that Jesus gives us. So taking sex outside the bonds of marriage is akin to saying this to Jesus, Jesus, I want all the benefits of the covenant with you, right? I, I want the intimacy and the sense that I'm known and protected and loved, but I also don't want to make a faithful covenant with you and worship only you. I also want to go over here and hold myself open to this sort of uh, relationship with this other God, let's say, with this other way of life, this, uh, with this other way of thinking. And it's impossible if we, if we hold ourselves open to worshiping multiple gods, it's impossible then to experience the intimacy of the, the covenant relationship of, with Jesus brings us. Do you see that? It's within the covenant with Jesus that we experience intimacy with him. Therefore, if sex is meant and designed to show us inti- what, in- what intimacy with Jesus is like, then he designed it to be within the covenant of marriage so that we would understand that it's in covenant that intimacy gets experienced. Okay, now I know that's all kind of big picture sort of theology, but I wanted to make sure we connected the dots because I think that many of us probably would go, well, I get the four pillars. I'm not sure why the context of marriage is necessary for sex to be able to do its job. Now, I said that today we're talking about singleness. So we're shifting gears here now. We're gonna talk about singleness. And you might ask, Okay, Trent, you just said that sex is really meant for the context of marriage. And this is a series about sex and sexuality and God's design of sex. So why are we talking about singleness? Uh, You just told us that that's not the place for sex, right? And so there's really a, a short answer to that. And it's this, it's that I think in order for us to understand and use sex the way God designed it to be used, to cultivate worship for him and delight in him. In order to do that, we don't just need to know the design of God in sex. We need to know the design of God in singleness. It's deeply important that we understand that. Now here's, let me just say this. Some of you are single, some of you are married. It's always a mix of both, right? And I recognize that there's any number of um, attitudes towards singleness that, that, come into the church. And here's what I would say we are guilty of. I wouldn't say I'm just kind of the church in general, and I think ours probably too, is that we exalt marriage but diminish singleness. That we act as if marriage is the ultimate goal of a life, right? And that's when you're whole and complete and fulfilled. And that singleness is just a placeholder before that moment. But I want you to know that's not biblical. And it's discouraging and disparaging, as a married person, I would say it's discouraging and disparaging towards our single friends. And by the way, your marriage, uh, marriage can't be understood and valued for what it is and why it's good until we understand what singleness is and why it's good. So really what I wanna do is I want to raise our view of singleness and God's purpose in it, his design of it, and his delight in it. God delights in singleness. So in other words, I also want to stop married couples saying to single people, let me set you up all the time because you'll be complete once you get that spouse. Right? I mean, for those of us who are married know that didn't complete us, right? Yes. I know you're going to be in trouble with your spouse when you get home later. Right? But Jerry Maguire was wrong. You do not complete me. Okay? If you haven't seen that movie... It's not one that should ever be referenced from a pulpit. And I've just made a horrendous mistake. Do not go watch it. It's in my young and foolish days. There is a unique pleasure, a unique pleasure to be found in God in our singleness. That's what I want, that's what I want you to get. Now, here's what I understand. Even as I say that, singleness involves a number of different categories, right? There's those of you who are 
you know, 18, 19, 20, somewhere in those younger years, and you're single because probably you just haven't seen fit to get married yet, but you may be thinking that could be coming in the near future, right? There's also, you know, I've never been married and I'm 45. Would you agree that singleness at that stage is very different than singleness at, at 19, at 20, at 20? It comes with a whole different set of emotional feelings, comes with a whole different set of, my, you know, a whole different mindset sometimes, right? There's also... You know, I've had a spouse who's left me and I find myself single and that's because really of a choice someone else made and that comes with a whole different set of things to consider, right? And there's, I'm single because my spouse has gone to be with the Lord, right? So there's being widowed, there's being divorced, there's being young and single, there's never having been married but having been in singleness for a number of years. In all that I'm gonna say, I don't intend to deny that there are very specific things that are needed in each of those contexts, and I would say very specific different things. But what the Bible says about singleness in general, whether it be singleness at 19 or singleness at 45 or single again for either death or divorce, whatever the the specific context of your singleness, the Bible has something to say about the desirableness of singleness. It really does. And I, I want you to understand that, that your condition is not outside the sovereignty of God, nor is it outside what he sa- has to say here about the purposes of singleness. Now, I also don't intend to, I hope that nowhere in what, I'll, what the Bible will say and what I'll try and explain, I hope that nowhere in that you'll hear, hey, you're single, suck it up. Right? Like, if that's hard for you, just deal with it. That's, that is nowhere in my intention. Because it, we shouldn't deny the challenges that come with singleness. There are challenges in all manners of life. In fact, I was thinking this, right? I, the argument I'm making is that singleness has a high purpose and that it's a privileged position in the kingdom of God. I really believe that. Singleness is a privileged position in the kingdom of God. That does not mean it's not hard, but there is no such thing as a privileged position in the kingdom of God that's easy. You know that, right? There's no such thing as a privilege, as a position of of power and authority in the position in the kingdom of God that, that is just easy to walk in, that doesn't exist, right? So let's answer a couple questions. The first question you need to answer, uh, answer is, why am I single? What is, what is when, I, when you say God has purposes in singles, what do you mean? Why does God design it? How does he design it? Number two is not just why am I single, but what can singleness do better than marriage? And we'll get to why I'm phrasing the question that way. And then number three, because it is challenging sometimes to be content in any of our circumstances, we might ask, well, how do I be content in singleness? How do I actually walk in a manner where I say I'm, I am actually content to be single rather than always kind of looking to be out of that context? So let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Okay. Verses one through nine. Now, this is probably the most famous passage in the Bible on singleness. And I'll read you these nine verses and then I'm gonna skip ahead to verse 25 through 35. It says this. Now concerning the matters which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You see how practical Paul is, right, about marriage. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, pause there, because one of the things you should recognize in reading this is that right there, the statement he just made, wives, you're not in charge of your own bodies. The husband is in charge of the wife's body, right? 
That's, that would have been the norm for Paul's cultural day and age. Nobody, but it would have, nobody would have batted an eye at that. Now I know I read that here and we all kind of go, what? Right? Nobody would have batted an eye at that. It's the truly radical thing is what he's going to say next. Watch this. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. No one in his cultural day and age would have thought that that was true. No one. The Bible is radical about the equality of male and female made in the image of God. Radical in God's equal design of both and delight in both, right? There should have been an amen from one of the ladies out there somewhere. (laughs) Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, so what he's essentially just said, he's given instructions to married people to say, don't withhold sex from one another for too long a period. He's exceedingly practical. By the way, this is one of those places to point in Scripture when someone says to you, well, where does, show me where the Bible says that you shouldn't have sex before you're married. One of the things you can look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and say, well, if he's presuming that one of the guards against sexual morality is to have a spouse with whom you can have sex and it's appropriate to have sex, then he's essentially saying that sex outside of that context, without that, leads to is immoral. You guys follow that, right? That would be one of the reasons he's arguing have a, have a spouse because there you have an opportunity for sexual expression. Now, that's all he's done so far is just explain like husbands, wives, behave this way towards one another. But then in verse six, he says this. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Okay, what's he just said? What Paul has just said is that singleness is good, right? Jesus says the same thing, by the way, in Matthew chapter 19. Check it out sometime. He is reading, he is responding to these scribes and Pharisees who are saying, when do you permit divorce? And Jesus raises the bar on that. And he says, you know, you think that it's permissible to get divorced for any number of reasons and you just kind of are willy-nilly about it. He says, I'm telling you, that's not God's design. That's not God's delight. And the disciples' response to Jesus raising the bar on this whole divorce thing and saying like, that's not, God, God doesn't take pleasure in that. The disciples' response is to say, well, then it's probably better not to get married, <laughs> which is an odd response from the disciples, right? Well, then, who, then why should we get married? They're saying, if we can't just get rid of our wives whenever we want to, why should, why should we get married? This sounds too hard. It's essentially what they're saying. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 no. Okay, like you heard me wrong. You should get married. It's good. Instead of doing that, do you know what Jesus does? He goes back and he says, This is a hard thing to receive, but those who can receive it should. And essentially then talks about people in his day and age who would have been single because of their physical situation. But essentially says, God has a design in singleness. It's good. And if you can receive it, you should. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 19. Paul's just echoing that same sentiment here in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. When he's saying, singleness, he's saying, I wish that you were as I myself am, which tells us that Paul was what? Paul was single, right? And he says, I'm single. I wish that you were in the same, singleness is so good, I wish you were single, right? Now the married couples are all feeling a little dejected, right? He says, singleness is so good. I I wish you had this gift. I wish you were in the same condition I'm in because there's something really valuable about it. Now, 
So the first thing we see is that he says, okay, it's good. Now the second thing that he says, look at verses 25 through 35. So if in verses one through nine, what we get is it's good. Then in verse 25 through 35, now listen to what he says here. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. That's an important point in Paul's theology right there. The appointed time has grown very short. In other words, Jesus is coming back real soon, is Paul's view, right? And from God's perspective, now you and I may think God is, Jesus is kind of tarrying for quite a while. We're wondering, where are you, right? Are you coming? From God's perspective, it's happening fast, okay? Now he says this. Oh, I shouldn't die. I lost my place now. Okay. The time is growing very short. Good. End of verse 29. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, what Paul has just said is he's not, he's not meaning like, Act like you really don't have a wife. Like put on blinders and ignore her, right? And he's not saying act like you literally are never buying food at the store. Or act. He's just saying what I want you to know is that none of these things are as important as the fact is that Jesus is coming back soon and there's work to be done. That's, that's what he's really saying there when he says act as if you don't have these things, dealings with the world. You know, he's, he's saying de-emphasize the importance of those things and emphasize the importance of the fact that, that there is kingdom work to be done in the world before Jesus returns. And then he says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That last sentence is the key. To secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. What Paul is essentially saying is, look, your affections, it's very possible that they get divided. And when you're married, you have to worry about how to please a spouse. And he's not actually diminishing that you should do that. You should worry about how to care for, love your spouse. But he said, that's a, in essence, that can be a distraction from the, from the work that you could be doing for the kingdom of God. So he says, one, it's good, singleness is good. And two, right, it's good because it enables you to build God's kingdom in a way that you couldn't if you were married. So this is what I want you to get. We think and treat marriage as if it's the goal for us when we're single often. But the thing I want you to understand is that's the wrong goal. He's actually saying your singleness is deeply important to the kingdom. You have something you can do when you're single that a married person can't do or at least will not do. And that's what he's getting at. So let's answer that question. What can singleness do that marriage can't? And I'm intentionally saying it that way because there are ways in which singleness is better than marriage. 
And we always treat it as if it's lesser. It is not lesser. All right? Now, what can singleness do that marriage can't? A couple things. First one, singleness enables you to pursue kingdom endeavors that married people cannot or will not pursue. So I just alluded to that, right? We'll throw these up on the screen for you. It enables you to pursue endeavors for the kingdom that married people either cannot or will not pursue. Now, here's, friends, I want you to know, this is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 7. He's saying, like, I wish that you were as I am because I'm, I have this freedom to go about pursuing bringing people into a relationship with Jesus that the married person, the other married apostles perhaps did not. Here's, I think, the key idea to get to you guys. Now, when I say that, here's what I recognize. I say that it enables you to do more kingdom work, but that's only compelling if you're consumed with doing kingdom work. If you love the idea of marriage more than you love the idea of people coming to know Jesus, this will have no appeal to you. But... If you've centered yourself around the purposes of God in the world and what you want more than you want anything else is for God to be glorified by redeeming people unto himself, then the thing that you'll recognize real quickly is I have an advantageous position as a single person to do things and to go places and to try things that my married counterparts may not be able to do or try or places they may not be able to go. And I need to seize the moment. Your singleness may be for a season. It may be for a lifetime. I don't know. But whichever it is, it's meant to be harnessed for God's kingdom being built in the world. Listen to Psalm 67. This is probably the clarion cry of God's design and purposes for the nations to come to know him and find joy in him. One of my favorite psalms. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? Why do we want God to be gracious and bless us and make his face shine upon us? Verse two, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. In other words, the psalmist is looking around. He's seeing whole groups of people that are not worshiping God. They don't have a, a gospel proclamation among them. And he's saying, don't let it be so. We want people to know the true and living God. Let all the peoples praise you, God. And then he says this right after that. Verse four, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. In other words, this isn't some imperialistic idea that I need them to get my belief system into them because I want my belief system to spread. He says, the joy of the nations hinges upon their true worship of God. That people apart from God cannot experience true joy and lasting joy. But in Christ, there is a joy to be had that extends to all nations and all people. And he is arguing, the psalmist is, that he longs for that to happen in people. Now, the thing that you need to know is just historically, all the greatest missions movements all the greatest movements of people going out to take the gospel to people who have yet to hear them have all been led by single people. Every single one. All the greatest revivals in the world of missions have happened primarily among college students. 1806, Williams College, Northwest Massachusetts. A group of five young men get together to pray and it begins to pour down rain. They're in a field praying and they start, seek out shelter and they find shelter underneath a haystack where they continue to pray for hours. Those hours of prayer turn into revival on campus, which begins to launch one of the greatest missions movements in the history of the global church. 
thousands upon thousands upon thousands of students end up being launched out to places where I'm, this is 1806. This is not, I'm getting on a plane and I'm gonna go for a couple years. This is, I am going to get on a boat and pack my coffin because I ain't coming back. I'm going to take the gospel to people who have yet to hear the gospel. And many organizations, I, I won't even begin to list them all, many organizations that you and I know if we're involved in missions that have launched out missionaries are the direct result of what is called in 1806 the Haystack Prayer Revival. Led by who? Five 19 to 21 year old men, all of whom were single and had this freedom to go and pursue taking the gospel to these places. Now, think about Paul. Paul is saying, I wish that you were as I am. Why? Why? I think Paul probably had a good sense that part of God's calling him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, which meant leaving Jerusalem, leaving his home nation and going to parts of the world that were, yet known, un, that were still unknown or where there weren't many people uh, that welcomed his way of thinking, right? Why can he do that? Why can Paul go on three missionary journeys and, and go all over the Mediterranean and go from place to place and upon his death still saying, I long to get to Spain. I've been to Rome. I've been, I wanna get all the way up to Spain where no one has gone with the gospel yet. At least part of that is because he's single. And I think he knows that. I think he knows God chose him, at least in part because of his singleness, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, all that is because there's a nimbleness and a freedom of movement available to the single person that serves the kingdom well. This is an ongoing conversation I used to have with God. Now, I was single until I was 31. That's, you know, all through your 20s. For some, it may not sound very long. Others, it's longer. You know, some people get married at 22, 23. Some people don't get married until 40-something. Some people never get married. And so it doesn't really matter how long I was single. But I, what I recognize is there was a, a, a good period there where I wasn't sure if I was ever gonna get married. And God and I would have that conversation regularly. Okay, God, is this something you want me for? I have a desire to be married. I'm not sure. I would read 1 Corinthians 7 a lot and try and figure out what does it look like to harness my singleness right now for you? I knew I was called to be a pastor. So I was in youth ministry and I was in college ministry. I was enjoying that. Had a lot of freedom in being able to stay out late nights and do a lot of things that probably wouldn't have happened if I were married during those years. And so I hope that they were kingdom fruitful. But one of the conversations that God and I would have regularly is I would say, okay, is it time to put all this aside and go to some other context where my married friends, uh, whom are many and whom I love, can't go? Is it time? Should I, should I put this down or should I go elsewhere? Now, every time God's conversation with me was to say, no, stay where you are. Stay where you are. This is what I want you to do. But we would regularly have a context. There were two contexts I think specifically fit single life very well. Uh, big cities in the middle of those cities. So I think it's very hard to raise families in those kinds of contexts. So singleness in the middle of a big city is a really valuable thing. The second thing, the second place is very remote areas. Places that are very remote and off the beaten path. Places where it may be hard to raise families in those contexts. Those are two contexts specifically that God and I used to talk about. There was a time where I, I was, I won't bore you with the story, but I was very close to making a move to uh, one of those contexts and lo and behold, God brought a, a young lady into my life and changed course a little bit. So now let's talk about this. The next reason why singleness is better than marriage in some ways is that singleness enables you to display Jesus is your true and better spouse. Here's what I mean by this. This is really the crux of the whole thing, friends. So this is what you need to get. And then I'll, 
I'll move on to talking about how do you be content. But the real, the real uh, important thing here that I want you to get is I think it's easy for the world to look at someone who's married, who's a follower of Jesus, and to say, yes, they say they're satisfied in Jesus, but there's this other, there's this spouse that they have that they clearly, like, they would be okay whether they had Jesus or not. I think it's easy for the world to think that way, right? They got a spouse, they got someone, and if it's a good marriage, right, someone who loves them, who protects them. So they're saying it's all about Jesus, but really they've got all these other good things, like a, like a wife, a husband, and, you know, I don't know if it's true or not, but when the single person says, I am content in my singleness because my Jesus is my true and better spouse, because he satisfies all my longings for intimacy and belonging, because he's the one that gives me value and me. I don't need a spouse to give me those things. When that happens, it speaks volumes to a world about the power of the gospel and the power of belonging to Jesus. There's a way in which singleness, a single person can display that, that a married person never can. It's not just singleness, it's contentedness in singleness that glorifies God. That's important. Now remember this, in traditional societies, this is something important to know, in traditional societies, marriage was always pursued because it gave a person status and security, right? And I think there's still some of that that goes on, right? We pursue marriage because of the status it affords us or the, or the security that it affords us. And the single person the single person who's content in Jesus says, I find those things in him and that glorifies him. So in a traditional setting, the, the gospel singleness, gospel-centered singleness enables that. But the other side of it is this. We live in a less traditional society. We live in a more modern society where marriage is typically avoided because of what it means about a loss for personal freedom. Now inside the church, I still think there's this culture that says, like drives us towards marriage. Uh, and marriage is good. I'm not demeaning marriage. Obviously, it's good, right? But there's this culture that drives us towards it. But you need to understand that the world outside of the church thinks very differently about marriage than we do. You know that, right? Most people, the trends are people stay single longer and longer and longer. And the reason, I mean, the real reason, the heart behind it is that there is a, a complete disdain for, for what marriage means in terms of having to limit my own personal freedom. Now, here's what, a gospel-centered singleness does. A gospel-centered singleness doesn't say I'm avoiding marriage because it means I would have to give up my things I like in order to sacrifice for a spouse, right? I wouldn't be able to buy this or have that or go there. Gospel-centered singleness, right, says I'm not avoiding, I'm not avoiding uh, that because of my own desire for personal autonomy. I'm choosing it because I'm content in the Lord and because he's yet to bring a spouse if he's going to even do that. The other thing is, this may be a no-duh, but you recognize, that, you recognize that God has not promised us a spouse, right? He's promised to be our spouse, our true and better spouse, but none of us has promised marriage. We act, I think sometimes we act as if that's a, a, it's a right that we have just by simply from being born, and it's not a right. I mean, friends, let's just do the, let's just do the math here for a second. All the statistics show us that there are uh, more women who are pursuing our Lord Jesus than there are men, which means that if we're going to not settle for someone who is not walking with Jesus, what's it going to mean, ladies, for some of you? 
Just the, the sheer math means singleness for some of us. And it means choosing it to glorify God and being content in it in a way that honors him. Now, how can I be content in singleness? I'm gonna jump forward here a little bit just because of our time. A couple things. Psalm 25, one of the richest psalms about how to walk in contentment really in life. A place I like to go back to. Couple of keys to being content in singleness. Number one would be this repeat the promises of God to yourself again and again. You need to know what God has promised you. We all need this, but particularly in singleness, we need it. Listen to Psalm 25, verses one through three. It says this To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. And then verse three Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. Do you see that promise? Church, do you see the promise there? None who wait on the Lord will be put to shame. Now look at what he says next in verse five. Or sorry, verse four. Make me, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. And then down to verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast, love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. In other words, what he's saying is, right? All the paths that the Lord has placed me on, verse 10, are a result of his love and his faithfulness, not a result of being forgotten. Whatever pathway God has you on, if it's a pathway of singleness, that is a result of his love and his faithfulness, not of being forgotten. And the promise that he's given you is that you will not be put to shame Perhaps you feel some sense of that. You will not be put to shame if you wait on the Lord. The second thing I would say is not just knowing, those are a couple of promises to cling to, not just knowing the promises of the Lord, but telling the Lord in prayer, you're waiting on him. Because the thing to remind, be reminded of in our singleness, I found this necessary all the time in my singleness, was to say, I am not waiting on a spouse. I am waiting on you. Your return and my, my then being brought into perfect life in you for all eternity, that's what I'm waiting on. I'm not waiting on having a, a wife. That's not ultimately what I'm waiting on. If you spend your time always worrying about like when or where could my spouse be, you're going to miss the fact that the thing you're really waiting on is Jesus. Longing for him to come. You have to cultivate a longing for Jesus to come back if you wanna be content in your singleness. Third thing I would say is call the church to be the church. Now I'm saying that, how to be content in your singleness. Single people call the church to be the church. But really, can I just say, this is probably more not for them to do, not for single people to do, but for married people to do. Because here's the deal. Ephesians 2, if I had time, I'd go there, but I don't. Ephesians 2 talks about that God has formed a church and made us one with one another. Now you need to be reminded, as I do too, that our Brother, sister, our sibling relationships in the Lord will last for all eternity. Like if you're my brother in the Lord, are you gonna be my brother in the Lord when we're in heaven or in the new heavens and the new earth? Yes, but Amanda will no longer be my wife. Marriage doesn't exist in eternity. That's one thing Jesus taught us. He says, that's not the way it works because the thing that our marriages were meant to display and show us is fulfilled. 
Marriages are a placeholder for our true and better spouse. Your marriage is meant to show you that you have a true and better spouse who is coming for you someday. And you're waiting on him. And when he comes back, your marriage covenant is no longer. Now you are in covenant relationship and marriage with Jesus. I'm not saying you won't know your spouse or feel, I don't exactly know what it will look like. The scriptures don't say, but it does say that you won't be married anymore. But we will be brothers and sisters in Christ. Our single brothers and sisters call us to be reminded of that fact. Now, here's what we do. Historically in church, we segment off by our marital status. We say, I'm single, therefore I'm over here. I'm married, therefore I'm over here. And that has to stop. Married couples, you need to invite single men and women into your life. You need to invite them in to speak into your lives, to speak into your marriages. Because one of the things that's true that we're reminded of by our single brothers and sisters is that experience is not the thing that gives us the ability to speak into one another's lives. Experience is valuable, but do you know what's more valuable? The truth of the word of God. If you're single, you have the power and authority to speak into a marriage. Do you know why? Because you can speak the truth of the Bible into that marriage, into your friends who are married, even if you're single. It reminds you as a minister of the gospel, your authority is in the word of God. It's not in the experiences you have. And that's a huge mistake that we make all the time. We think that our experiences are what give us authority and power to be ministers of the gospel, and they do not. They can be valuable, but they are not ultimately where our authority comes from. My encouragement to you is, particularly if you're married, you need to create a context and we need to create a context as a church where we're less worried about like, hey, I'm single. And by the way, single people, don't segment yourself off just with single people, okay? Don't do that either. But our married couples, in order to create thriving for, I think, this is, I could be wrong about this, but I think in order to create thriving for our single men and women in our context, which are many, we need to be inviting them into our homes and creating a, because I think it's harder for them to do the opposite and to invite us into theirs. We need to create a context where we are um, beyond the bounds of our marital status, where we are relating to one another with good health. Because the other thing that's hugely important to remember is to be called to, to singleness is not to be called to loneliness. I hope you know that. To be called to singleness is to be called to a certain endeavor in pushing forward the kingdom of God. But it is not to be called to be lonely because the church is your true and better family. The ones that should surround you with belonging and care and love and, and bringing in. Okay, I'll stop there. There's much more we could say. Again, my hope, friends, is not that any of that sounds um, really harsh, but that it is pointing you back to biblical truth about God's high value of singleness, that we'd raise that up. Let me pray for you. I don't feel like I've done a very good job expressing that, but we'll trust that God's word can take and land itself in our hearts and teach and instruct us, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you to be our teacher. We pray that you would be. We pray that you would be gracious to us in all the places where we hurt. Would you soothe those wounds? We pray that you would draw us back to yourself. You are the one that we need. And we recognize, Father, particularly in our singleness, when that's our state, we recognize that we ebb and flow with moments of great joy in it and moments where it's hard for us to embrace the joy of it. I pray that we as a church would be better, more adept at 
walking alongside one another in all of our different circumstances, in all of our different challenging kingdom endeavors so that we would pursue your great glory among the nations. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.